It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks Podcast. Stan Dryav, Nick Braccia coming at you. We're going to discuss UFC 256 coming up this weekend where Figueredo defends his flyweight title against Moreno. And we're going to talk about last week's UFC fight night, Hermanson versus Vittori, where Vittori comes out strong as a serious prospect in that middleweight division. I guess contender is more the appropriate term, Nick. What were your thoughts on that one? Well, first and foremost, you pretty much locked up the year after my surge. So I'm a little... And still... I'm a little bummed about that because I had ch- I charged hard for like six months and caught up all that ground and pummeled you last week. And then this week I, I took a beating that was just as bad. Um, I took a few too many gambles. Although, if uh, would we have tied if Gian Vellante had actually fought? Oh, Nikolai, I, there's no way we would have tied. I got every pick right, and you got one pick right. There's no way we would have tied. Oh, I thought you got. I thought you got a couple wrong. No, you got. No, you sir. were. You were. You aced it. Undefeated, untouchable. Yeah, Nick. It was. It was you a good four, week. It was a good week for me. You were four and zero. Okay. Yep. I was. So I was four and zero last week. All right. Uh, so that would have put me at two and two. I made gambles on uh, Quinones, which I thought was going to pay off uh, for me, and looked like it was going to, and then didn't. And on Damon Jackson, I just I just guessed wrong. <laughs> um, so I also guessed wrong on Justin, <laughs> Justin James. Yeah, you so and I disagreed on quite a few picks on this one. I actually got only one pick officially wrong, even outside of our competition as far as the predictions for the event. And that was that matchup between uh, Volante and Collier. You know, it was hard to figure what Collier could have done given how quickly he got put away in his last fight. And it turns out he's still, like, you know, kind of a decent middleweight, just weighs 265 pounds. I thought Volante would hurt him, but it didn't happen. Anyway, so I ate it, and it's now now it's impossible for me to bridge the gap and get a victory. There's two cards left, and I'm three fights behind. So the magic number was up, and who knows what will happen these last two weeks, but I feel like I made the... Um, at least the second half of the year, extremely competitive. And I definitely had a major winning record over the second half of the year, but it's all for naught. Yeah. So, but you've gonna, you're going to have to deal with a new level of competition in 2021, Stan. I can't wait, Nick. We're going to rejigger the rules a little bit. We're going to make it more interesting. Are we? We'll see about that. I'll have my lawyers talk to your lawyers. Or maybe <laughs> Fair enough. My, my union rep. Um, just saying you're going to rejigger the rules like you're the fucking commissioner. No, I, I said we're going to rejigger the rules because I, I was yeah. figuring uh, I was figuring we, we can actually discuss it and get into it. My thought was that for the, for the tiebreaker. Yeah, yeah, sure. We could have some fucking Earl, Earl Grey tea and talk about this bullshit. Fine. I'm more of a coffee guy, but or I'm I open just, to Or it. I can just destroy you. Wait, you're more oh. of a what guy? Nikolai, talking real confident after the shellacking you just picked up. But seriously, Nick, you did make the last several months competitive. Um, I, I, I think... Like, I'm retaining now the title, I believe, for the third time. And this one was as close as it gets, Nick. We were just a couple of picks apart going into last week's event. And I was fortunate enough to get a couple more right than you did. But it has been competitive, man. I give you props on that. We're going to discuss whether or not we'll rejigger the rules a little bit. I think there's a a better way to figure out tiebreakers. I think we could add a little more value to picking underdogs, which will entice us to do it, rather than kind of leaving the other guy to potentially make the uh, pick the favorite and get the wrong pick. So... 
I, I think there's some potential to improve our system a little bit here, but I do think it works well. And how competitive this season has been, I think, is a sign of that. Let's talk about Vittori and Hermanson, Nick. Such an impressive performance by Vittori. And leading up to this one, he hadn't really fought anybody at the very highest of levels uh, besides well, Israel Adesanya. Yeah, except and was a, Israel Adesanya. Yeah, and except, it was a close... Except arguably the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, here's the thing about Adesanya. Even when he did fight him back in the day, this was after Adesanya's UFC debut, where Rob Wilkinson, who's by all means a mediocre fighter, took Adesanya down a few times. So... You know, Vittori that early on, I mean, granted, Vittori was developing as well back then. It wasn't this, that long ago. It's just two and a half years ago. Sometimes you don't see fighters true. for two and a half years. Like, yes, Adesanya has improved a ton um, since then, but it really was not in MMA time, not that long ago. That's like 0.6 Cain Velasquez fights. <laughs> like yeah, it's uh, not... uh, Adesanya actually has six wins since that night, and Herman and uh, Vittori just picked up his fourth win. So Adesanya has been busier to your point. He's you're right. He's made huge improvements. Oh yeah, he's been fighting three, four times a year, except for this year where he fought two. But a lot of champs only fight once. A, you know, some champs only fight once a year. Like Adesanya's been Adesanya's been very active. Um, it just hasn't it hasn't been that long. No, you're right. And you know what? Vittori made his way through kind of the mid-pack of that division. Some talented guys who, you know, have exploitable holes in their games. Carl Robertson, Andrew Sanchez, Cesar Ferreira, uh, Vitor Miranda earlier on. Um, and, and then going into this one was his first actual top five opponent, Jack Hermanson. He wasn't preparing for a five-round fight. Vittori wasn't, right? So for him to be put in that position and to perform the way that he did, to win clear-cut four of the five rounds, Nick, that was impressive. To have the maturity to temper his energy. And he talked about energy management after the fight. The fact that he has the maturity to factor that in and to play that into the fight, the fact that he had the maturity to take that maybe third round off so he would have enough energy to finish strong in rounds four and five, that was impressive, man. Um, he knocked Hermanson down, and Vittori mentioned this too, is that, you know, I talked about last week how Hermanson doesn't have a lot of heart, he doesn't have a lot of will. Once he's hurt, you can basically tuck him away. He's done. And Hermanson survived through, you know, a rough first round where he got knocked down and kept trying, man. The guy has conditioning, and he did show more will than he has in prior fights, but it wasn't enough. Vittori was the better man. His pressure was stronger. His stand-up was better. And you know what? Vittori's grappling now we should give serious credit to because everyone assumed that Jack Hermanson would have the edge there. But Vittori not only kept himself from being on bottom, but did really well when he did take top position. So props to Vittori, man. Really, really solid performance, and I look forward to seeing him face off with some of the division's best now. Yeah, he looks fantastic. He's got pop. He's a big, strong dude. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, I want to see him fight Whitaker. Uh, I want to see him fight Till. Jeez, that imagine what would Till do with that? I'm very curious. Um, that, I think that'd be a great fight. I think, uh, yeah, I think Till's wait. Till, yeah, Till's fighting at middleweight. Yeah, but um, I, I, I don't know that Till. I think Till is below this point. Till has one win in the division, and it was a pretty good, you know, win over a guy that. Uh, Hermanson already kind of smoked in the first round, a training partner, uh, Gashilm, a training partner of Marvin Vittori. So I don't know that it's necessarily warranted to fight I mean, Till. He's, he's still ranked ahead of him. I mean, is he? Rankings. Oh well, yeah. the rankings must I have mean, not been updated since this win. Am I right? Well, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the World MMA rankings uh, versus the UFC ones, but the, I'm sure the UFC has Till. The UFC loves Till. They always he's medium man. He's not that fun to watch. He has a hard left hand. I, I know, but that's why I want. I'd like to see Vittori knock him out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear that. I'm there with All you. All right, no, currently Vittori's ranked uh, fifth, 
and Till's ranked right, be, like one behind him. But so there's Cannoneer coming off the list. Like Costa would be interesting. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I think he'll get. He'll probably get uh, Whitaker, Costa. You know, it, dep- it depends what the UFC wants to do, how high they are on him. They might give him Brunson, um, or want to see if he'll fight Brunson. I mean, we'll we'll see. It's probably it's probably going to be Costa, but uh, and I would pick Vittori in that fight. You would pick Vittori over Costa. Uh, yeah, I mean, given the momentums, I would too. Uh, especially since Vittori has the ground game and Costa, well, I know he's he also has a better to be fight a... IQ. Costa doesn't have a very good fight IQ. I don't yeah, think. I would agree with you. Although, although I will say, like, I think judging Costa purely on his last fight isn't necessarily fair. Like, he he, you know, he didn't come in with all of his faculties. He clearly didn't make good decisions. The game plan sucked. And and so I, I do think we got to give him credit more for his career prior to that. But yeah, I would be interested in that. Marvin Vittori actually initially called out, uh, called him out right after the fight, right? Yes. Uh, called Costa out, and then shortly after in the press conference was like, you know what? Why do I need to fight Costa? The guy's coming off a terrible loss. I want out of sign you. Get me right to that title. I think that was the right call. I think he would have been smarter had he made that call out initially, and he would have had a higher shot of getting to Adesanya. I think a lot of folks are discussing him and Costa now because of that uh, immediate post-fight reaction. But Marvin Vittori kept dropping that left hand consistently. He kept wading through any of the offense that Jack threw, including in that third round where Jack really went for it. And that's one thing I noticed in watching tape for of Marvin Vittori is that he can take shots, man. He doesn't react when he when somebody uh, lands a clean bomb on him. He can just he keeps pressing and keeps working through all of those moments, and he did that here against Hermanson, who's not necessarily known for having serious power. Uh, but again, Hermanson is crafty. The conditioning is up there. He had the the height and reach advantage over him, and serious serious ground game on Hermanson. And Vittori looked really really good, really consistent. Um, I, I think uh, it, I'm glad to have seen the arrival of this young man into the good Italian fighter. That's right. Certainly the best hope that Italy has, I think, when it comes to UFC championship potential. Uh, yeah, fighting out of King's MMA. Uh, he's uh, the evolution of Alessio Sakara. <laughs> That's very funny. I, I, I feel like there's like, yeah, I, I guess he is like 10 leagues later, but Alessio Sakara was a mediocre fighter even by those standards back when he oh, yeah. did compete, uh, yeah, back was, when MMA was. He was just, he was just a, he was a bomber. He was a bomber, with, you know, glass cannon fighter. Yeah, so this card ended up getting ravaged a little bit. Uh, I'm looking at the cancellations in total, Nick. We had uh, nine, we had eight cancellations for this event, right? Eight canceled fights, which means we had as many fights on the event at the end of the day as we had cancellations for this one. So it was, it was kind of a weird card in that way. Um, you and I COVID be ravaging. On, yeah, yeah. You and I uh, disagreed on both the main event. Uh, I picked Vittoria, you picked Hermanson, which is understandable, to be honest. We also disagreed on the co-main event. You picked Ovin St. Peru, and I picked Jamal Hill. St. Peru missed weight, and honestly, I don't think it mattered. Jamal Hill was going to win this fight. It was clear just from watching them go for a couple of minutes. And the matchup reminded me in large part of the Dominic Reyes matchup against St. Peru in that he just really did not look good against a southpaw who was ready to counter, who was fairly aggressive, who was going to circle the octagon. St. Prue is known for kind of plotting, kind of staying in one place and waiting for the opportunity to either clinch for a takedown or land a, a counterbomb. But Jamal Hill wasn't given that to him. He was significantly faster, as we discussed last week, and he really put it on St. Prue. It just seemed like St. Prue was in a different league. If you ask me which one was the veteran going into this bout, uh, you know, you would have been surprised to hear that it's OSP, the guy who got shellacked, just kind of completely controlled. Jamal Hill is serious, and he's a serious contender at 205, and all the more reason, I think, for us to be excited 
for that division. Yeah, OSP let me down a little bit. Um, he's looked so physically strong in his last couple of fights, but also I thought that he, what I thought might happen was OSP's real secret weapon, even though he sort of positions himself as this, you know, as like a creative, powerful, like an orthodox striker. I really think OSP's path to victory against anyone in the top 25, maybe 20 in the division, you know, save like, save like Shogun, is to end up on top or even on bottom and get and get some kind of creative choke. He's got really, really good chokes. Um, but if you, if he can't get you into that position, his, uh, you know, his, his options become limited, uh, because he's just not, uh, he's, he's just not his, his boxing is not that crisp. He doesn't really throw combinations and it can, res it can result in him getting pieced up with no plan B if he cannot get, you know, if he's getting outboxed and he cannot get on top or get the fight on the ground where he can get one of those sneaky chokes, um, he's, you know, he's, he's going to get tagged and that's what happened. Uh, Jamal Hill treated him like a, uh, you know, like a Bob, like a Bob, the boxing dummy. Um, and just like landed shot after shot after shot. And if I recall, I mean, my memory is slipping at old age. I mean, this was a, this was a standing TKO, correct? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. He just overwhelmed him with shots and he, he looked really good. All sorts of options for Jamal Hill at, at light heavyweight. Um, Next, I mean, you got there. Jimmy Crute would be an interesting fight. Uh, he could he could maybe um, end the still somehow alive Johnny Walker parade. That yeah. would be you know that could be a good next fight. I don't want I don't want to see him against Ozdemir. Uh, I mean, the other thing may be to give him. Well, it depends where where Kevin Holland's gonna like end up. But we've got this Yakare Kevin Holland fight, right? So I mean, it could be that the the winner of that fight. Is a good opponent. Yeah, I could definitely see that working. You know, Anthony Anthony Smith coming off of a win, but I think Jamal Hill would light up Anthony Smith double quick. I think I think so. I think like at this point, Anthony Smith is. I think one of those fighters. Dana White mentioned after this event that they were going to be making a lot of cuts, and one of those cuts was Yael Romero. I think they're going to target guys that are getting paid a lot, but don't really win a whole lot and don't really bring in serious ratings. I think Anthony Smith is probably on the brink of that if he loses I one more. Maybe um, if he loses one more, I think they got who they're going to cut. But remember, Anthony Smith's someone that they put on the desk at ESPN. Um, I think he's I think he's somebody that they like. He did win that fight against Devin Clark. You could you could be right, but I mean, Yoel Romero, his he showed up with weird strategies and not. There's nothing UFC hates and Dana White I think hates nothing more than a fighter whose highlight reel is amazing, who fights a milky toast fight. Like, yep. Romero, you know, it's easy to sell a Yoel Romero fight. And then you go and you watch him clown and stare um, at Adesanya and occasionally conserve his energy for, like, a big bomb. And you're like, what did I just sell the fans? Yep. That's a bad that, that's bad business. I don't care if you're what kind of, you know, businessman you are. You know or what kind of human being you are. It's clear that, like, being in the Yoel Romero business is a, is a dangerous business because you don't know who's going to show up. Anderson Silva was like that for a while. He used to drive Dana crazy. Yeah. Until he got, until he got the, he, he won back the good, got back in the good graces with the front kick against Vitor Belfort. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know that Anthony Smith is quite there yet. If he had lost to Devin Clark, I think I would agree with you. Um, but he, he didn't. So I think, I think he's all right. I do, I am interested to see. Um, who ends up on the other end of these cuts? I think uh, OSP is probably going to be on that list. He makes a decent amount of money. I think that's even uh, that's very. You're, I completely agree with you. Yeah, astute yeah. point. Astute point. Set us off. 
Um, I, I do wonder, I, I actually, who else on this card in particular? Because I, I think there's one or two other candidates. I think Benitez saved himself in this situation. John Allen might very well get cut after a steroid failure and this uh, G- loss. <laughs> Gian Vellante. Matt Wyman, 100%. I mean, he's oh, yeah. Wy- Wyman and Vellante are, are absolutely yeah. done. I think Quinones will hang. I think Justin James gets one more probably because he's been like a sh- he's been a COVID hero. He's fought three times during COVID. Yeah, yes, he possibly. got finished. Tw- he and got, he's not getting he paid got fin- much. He got finished twice, but one was his his victory was an exciting KO, and his loss to Gavin Tucker was a really thrilling fight, if I remember correctly. It was, yeah. Um, so I don't think he's going anywhere. Uh, Jose Alberto Quinones, he he brought it, and I don't think he's probably getting paid a lot. Maybe you know, maybe he sticks around. Damon Jackson, after again, sh- like COVID, COVID hero, came in and beat uh, Merced Bektik. Merced Bektik? Uh, Merced Bektik, yeah. Merced Bektik on, um, on, you know, on short notice and came in and just got, you know, just couldn't take the blasts from the undefeated Georgian fighter um, who is probably real deal. So I think Damon Jackson sticks around. I think Wyman and Volante, guys who are well past their expiration date, and OSP, a fighter who came up in strike force who uh you know they were really really building and was a was a great athlete but never never quite put all of the pieces together uh to become like a a real i mean yes he got the fight against john jones but osp was never really a top five level if if there was ever a point when he's been in the top five it's because it's because jones had nuked the division and it was just like there was nothing going on in the division but he's not a top five level fighter he's not uh he's not well-rounded and, well, well, Ronda might not be the right term. He's just he's never been able to kind of put all those pieces together, um, you know, strategically. Yeah. And and uh, he's he's the kind of guy who like who who loses a fight when in transitions when the fight cha- when the fight changes and he can't keep up or he can't enforce his will. He's just not that adaptable. And he started, if I recall, he started MMA quite late. Um, even though he's fought forty fights. Yeah, I don't know if he started late because I remember him in Strike Force being kind of a young kid that was fighting a lot of these more established names. But here's the thing about Ovin St. Peru, and this was part of the deciding factor for me picking Jamal Hill in this one with confidence, is that Ovin St. Peru is now, after this fight, 3-5 and five in his last eight right? Like he's not a very successful UFC fighter and his wins are over Alonzo Manifield, Mikhail Olianchik, and Tyson Pedro. These are prospects with serious holes who he was kind of the one to discover those holes in, in these guys, right? He was Alonzo Manifield's, uh, I believe uh, he was the second guy to beat Menifield, the first guy to beat Mahal Olianchik in the UFC, uh, first, second guy to beat Tyson Pedro, um, Jamal Hill didn't necessarily show these kinds of holes when he was on his back. He gets up almost immediately standing up. He's shown almost no weakness except his chin's a little high. And then OSP loses to guys like Ben Rothwell, Nikita Krilov, Dominic Reyes, and Ilir Latifi. Uh, all of these guys are kind of crafty veterans. Dominic Reyes arguably is more of a prospect when he lost to OSP. But that's the thing is that, um, OSP has been beating prospects with serious holes. I didn't believe Jamal Hill to be in that group. And again, I mentioned last week, Jamal Hill is something special and he came through and really showed it in this matchup. Gabriel Benitez roughed up Justin James, like didn't have that rough moment in the first round that we expected he might, given that James has gotten knockdowns in I think his last six or seven fights in the first round. 
Uh, Gabriel Benitez just put it on him. Uh, I talked about his speed advantage. I like the fact that he was coming back up in weight for this one after you know getting a knockout scored against him in the lower weight division. And he looked good here, man. Justin Janes is probably not that great of a fighter. He's got a wrestling background and some power in his hands, but no conditioning really. And you know, as yep. we saw with this body shot, probably not a whole lot of heart either. I don't know those. I don't know if I can say if I can agree with that. Um, I've never. I mean, I've been hit in the liver, but not by anybody with any real. Um, you know, with any real pop, but you know, the, I don't know the bot. There's that whole bot, like that whole like the body shuts down thing. I don't know if if the liver shot is the is the exception to the rule. I remember a guy who fought like Frankenstein with heart for a really long time, Matt Hamill. You know, people have said different kinds of things about him outside the cage, but when Rick Franklin, Rich Franklin, hit him with that kick, he just a guy that had walked through everything just kind of like wilted. So I, I don't know if that's a question of, of just a, a physical button or, you know, or heart when guys are curled up against the cage, taking ground and pound and just like doing the weak cover up. Like we've seen Chad Mendes do or something Right. that I'm like, I'm like, okay, man, come on. Do you want to be in here? The liver shots? I'm not sure. I'm not sure you have a choice. Well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I've been hit to the liver um, pretty clean, probably six or seven times so far. And I remember, like, again, maybe I didn't take the clean shot that some of these guys are taking. Uh, some of my sparring sessions have been against some pretty high-level fighters. And yes. I've never gone down. Like, I remember thinking, oh, my God, that hurts terribly. Do not show it. Keep your face straight. Let's keep fighting. Um, I do think there is there are people who can do that. I do think it's a mental strength thing. It's an immediate and just, like, gut-wrenching pain, right? But, but, like, my instinct is to not show that to my opponent even in a sparring match. And maybe so I'm you don't lose control. You don't lose control of your body and like shit your pants. And I mean, I mean, I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean, you don't, it doesn't actually short circuit your body. Uh, no, it, it's just like a bad pain in one area. And it's like the kind of pain where you almost do feel like crunching and like, almost like that would help you somehow. Like um, getting kicked in the balls. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I remember, uh, there, there was a, t uh, no, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know that it's like getting kicked in the balls. I would say it's less in my experience, at least it's less severe, um, huh. and, and maybe it's because mentally I can show that I got hit in the balls and I could show the pain from that, but I'm not willing to show that pain from a clean strike that my opponent landed. I remember a client landed, uh, you know, a client who actually, uh, has over the years become a really good boxer of mine. Um, he landed a, you can a say my name. You can say my name. It Steph. wasn't you. Stop it. Uh, he, he, he landed a clean liver shot on me one time. And I remember thinking, Oh wow, that's about as clean as I've ever taken. And he's a big heavyweight guy. I remember thinking, Oh, that's about as, uh, as hard as I've ever taken it to the liver. And I remember thinking, I cannot show this man that he just hurt me. Um, so yeah, like, look, I, I do think there's, there's something to that. There are some guys who will fight through that. Like you see a guy drop his elbow a little bit from a liver shot. Right. And that's a tell or maybe wince a little bit like Cormier did after like the sixth or seventh liver shot. But Cormier, Cormier didn't wince. We saw, we saw Cormier wince a bunch. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Maybe. But here's the thing. A wince is like an involuntary thing. You can't really control it. But he did control the fact that he didn't just curl up on a ball and give up. Right. Uh, he no, ended up never. getting hurt. To, he ended up getting hurt to the jaw. But that's what I'm talking about is the difference between Sarah McMahon against Ronda Rousey, who just literally crumbled the moment she took a knee to the liver. And a guy like Cormier, who took heavy, heavy left hooks repeatedly from Miocic, from the heavyweight goat, and did not go down. All he showed was a wince here and there, and that eventually led to him getting knocked out to the head. But never did he crumble from that liver shot. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I do think there's a mental aspect to it. No, that's a good, that's a good distinction. 
Yeah, and, and Justin James didn't necessarily show it. And then we had that matchup between Roman Dalids and John Allen. You want to agree? Oh, before that we Dalids... get in that, I just want to yeah. I want to go back to the OSP because I did a little uh-huh. I did a little keyboard warrior research. And what I meant when I said he got a late start was OSP was a football player, and he That's didn't right. start really training martial arts until after college, which you know he was in his early twenties. And when I compare him to the guys who you know are younger than him but were doing martial arts and you know post tough like when the UFC was a big deal like as essentially their formative years were wrestling, were training to be MMA fighters. Like anyone who went through the collegiate and ready for, and like trying out for the pros um, in football and then is like, well, that didn't work out. And we've seen a couple of guys like this, but that's coming to it late. If you've, if you've had an amateur career and a career growing up where you've been completely focused on a sport and then decide that like, hey, maybe I'll try this MMA thing and you're in your 20s. I think that's coming to it late. He was he had only been doing martial arts for four years when he had his pro debut, and that was the point I was trying to make was that if OSP had started training, started taking martial arts when he was eleven, then I you know it, maybe the story would have been different. Actually, I'm looking at his record now, and he started fighting in 2007, which would make him I think 24 when he started fighting, and and I'm talking about amateurs here. So yeah, that's a fair point. He didn't start right in his teenage years, and I think at that point when Ovin St. Preux started competing in MMA, not a whole lot of guys were like fighting, you know, fighting from having trained since three or four years old, unless we're talking about the wrestlers. But I do hear you. He did focus on his and, uh, football career before this. And in those in, in those early strike force fights, he was a mess. I don't know if you remember them, but like his Musasi fight, even. Some of the stuff that he showed in his Brit fight and against Benji Raddick, he was like, it's like, okay, this guy's raw. Like, he's powerful and athletic, but what's To be honest, you know? I don't know that Ovin St. Brew ever really shook that rawness about him, honestly. Like, he it, got, oh, it, got, it, got better, it got better than it was. I mean, yeah, so yeah, go, yeah, go I back and watch that. those Strike Force fights, and it's like, he's, I mean, it's very, he's, it looks like a very, very uh, raw, like, uh, high upside amateur. I do have to ask Nick, like, I wonder what would have happened to this guy had he, like, trained with a legitimate team from early on in his MMA career. Because he's super athletic. He had a good chin, serious power in his hands, uh, really kind of took to the submission game. I wonder what would have happened had he gone to American Top Team instead of staying at Knoxville Mixed Martial Arts for all of his career. Um, That's a really good question. Yeah, because with his talents, man, with with what he has to work with, if he just got the right kind of coaching and training partners behind him, I think that could have made a big difference. We could have been looking at a career record of like thirty two and seven rather than twenty five and fifteen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I just, I mean, Jackson Wink would have been interesting for his for his body type, and he would have been training with John Jones, um, and he would have like he's the size the size and strength of this guy. Is I would have loved to have watched him, you know, fight behind. Imagine, imagine OSP with a like with a real electric jab. Yes. Oh man, that would have <laughs> been know? something else. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, actually, I guess. Sorry, just to correct myself, that would have been that would have been more. Um, I guess probably less Jackson Wink and more uh, TriStar. But you you can understand why I conflate those gyms sometimes. Yeah, J- Jackson Wink would have probably made him a, like a risk-averse stand-up fighter who never really throws anything, just keeps you out of distance with with karate kicks or what have you. The Holly Holm, John Jones, Michelle Waterson style. Um, yeah, I'm not again. I think Jackson Wink used to be an elite team. I'm not sure that it has been for the last several years, and I don't know that it has done much for people to be training with John Jones. I think he just kind of mauls people and takes their confidence away. He's probably nice to them and you know uh, friendly and all of that, but I don't know that it did a whole lot of, uh, for folks to be training with John Jones. I'm a big fan of ATT, and I think they could have done something with a guy like OSP, kind of like they did. You know, they've been doing really effective work with Greg Hardy. 
Um, and then uh, we had the Dolids-Allen decision, Nick. We do have to quickly discuss this. Roman Dolids, conceivably, yes. right, clearly won two rounds, in my opinion. Probably won three rounds. Uh, the, I think that second round was when John Allen was able to land some effective strikes on the feet. But man, Chris Lee, it's that judge that uh, had the recent controversy, strikes again in this one. Uh, this is the judge that picked Paul Felder over Rafael Dos Anjos a couple of weeks ago. He Absolutely picked John insane. Allen. Absolutely, man. And by the way, this is also the judge that picked uh, Hill over Watterson, which, to be fair, a lot of MMA media did agree with. I ended up disagreeing with that decision. Uh, this judge I did picked... too, but that was a super, I mean, that was a super close fight. Felder did not, there's no, no judge in the world could give Felder more than one round of that Ozanio's fight. It's like, what were you yeah, watching? I'm, th- I'm there with you. He seems to favor the strikers, Nick, because I'm looking at it. He uh, he actually favored Sam Almey over Ryan Spann uh, several months ago. He picked, uh, let's see, there were actually, uh, he picked, uh, he picked Andrea Lee over, over uh, Lauren Murphy a little bit ago. And that's another one that, honestly, I thought Lauren Murphy probably earned that decision. And that, that one was more controversial, could have gone either way. But there were a couple of others. He actually, he was, he was the guy that picked Marvin Vittori back in the day over uh, Israel Adesanya, Nick which I find to be interesting. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, there is something to crazy damage. Like, Alvi did hurt Ryan Spann way worse than Ryan Spann hurt Sam Alvi in that fight. But overall, I think, you know, I think Spann won the fight according to the rules. Yeah. Um, he just, Chrisley seems to favor the guy that's doing damage standing up, the guy that prefers to stand up. He picked, uh, uh, he also picked in that uh, Sanhagen-Lineker bout. He was also the dissenting judge in that split decision as well. Uh, he ended up picking uh, Lineker in that one, even though Sanhagen picked up the decision. Uh, that one, again, was another close one, but he has a history of this. He consistently picks the striker over the over the grappler, regardless of how well the grappler is doing. This just seems to be how yeah, he judges like, fights. It, it seems like he gives, he gives points for bad intent. And to yeah. some extent, I can, I mean, okay, but like Sanhagen ate those shots and did more stuff. So it's, it's, yeah, it's tricky. Um, in some cases, I can see. I, in some cases, I think he's got a point. In other cases, like Felder against RDA, I'm just like it was terrible. I agree. I get. I get it. There were moments on the feet where Felder was fast in landing landing combos, but if you if you're spending eighty percent of a round unable to get up, taking ground and pound damage, and Dosanios didn't do nothing on the feet. You know for sure. He just he didn't have. He didn't have what he didn't have because he's kind of a, a, I don't want to say meat and potato striker, but he's, you know, Javier Dosanos isn't a guy who who styles on you with stand-up. He's very effective and measured, um, and he can hurt you really bad and and do explosive stuff, but it's not, you know, he's not going to put together a five-strike combo the way that Felder is, even if three of them miss. Yeah, I'm there with you. I, I, I love Paul Felder. I mean, everybody. I, mean, I love watching Paul Felder strike, but he did not win that fight, and it wasn't even, it wasn't close. <laughs> I agree. I'm, I'm definitely there with you. I, I think it was a, it was a silly decision, and he, he did it here again. I think, like the Nevada State Athletic Commission, in my opinion, for being like a destination for all combat sports, right? Whether it be kickboxing mixed martial arts or boxing, you would think they'd have their shit together, but they're still doing stuff like handing out six-month suspensions for elevated testosterone while handing out five-year fucking suspensions for marijuana, Nick. 
they, they 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 keep putting judges like this in, even though they're making terrible calls. There was that referee that made a few bad calls, and I forget his name. Uh, that they keep just putting into the rotation again and again at a high level. There seems to be no accountability. If you're a buddy of theirs, if you're a friend of theirs, and you get along with the people in charge, you're going to keep getting work regardless of how bad of a job you're doing. And if you piss them off as a fighter, you're going to get the rule book thrown at you, even if you're not actually cheating with steroids. And, and they're going to treat a steroid user lightly because they're kind to them. It's it's freaking unbelievable, Nick, like the way this commission Always works. remember that scene. Always remember that scene, Stan, in the movie Casino. Which I adore, you know, quarter century old, when uh, <laughs> De Niro is running that tight operation and he wants the the guy played by Joe Bob Briggs off the casino floor, and they're like, oh. "Hey, he's my brother-in-law. Can't you just move him further down the trough?" And De Niro <laughs> says, "No," and then they 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 kneecap him for it professionally. Yeah, uh, you know, there it's a. I can't claim to know shit about how Las Vegas works. I just know to be suspicious of it. <laughs> or yeah, or the, state of, the state of Nevada, rather. Um, no joke. Anyway. So, uh, so Jordan Levitt knocked out Matt Wyman. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, quick. J- quick, yeah. and maybe it's, this is good. Maybe this is a good thing. I mean, Matt Wyman obviously got his, his brain scrambled. Uh, the back of his head slammed against the mat. And it seemed like he should have been able to take it like a wrestling bump and lift his chin or do... So, I don't know to do something like it wasn't we've seen slams this wasn't the most this didn't seem like a KO slam to me uh, I'll tell you the secret but it Nick. was and he didn't take any you know let's just let's just not time it's time to go home Matt Wyman he was a lot of fun to watch for many many years but this comeback was was uh, certainly ill-advised yeah to say the least but but I will tell you about that knockout Nick uh Jordan Levitt mentioned after the fight about how a UFC fighter earlier on you know several years ago had gotten this sort of knockout repeatedly, this sort of slam knockout. And he couldn't name the fighter. I can name you the fighter. I thought I was the only one that noticed the technique that he used to get those knockouts. It was Gerald Harris. Years ago, Nick, uh, he was a boring fighter, but he just kept like slamming guys and knocking them out consistently. And I noticed years ago what he did in order to get that knockout was he would put his forearm on the jaw of his opponent before slamming the back of his opponent's head down to the mat. So what ends up happening is that instead of your head kind of bouncing off the mat and relieving some of that some of that uh, impact, right, because of the bounce, because your head is kind of going in the opposite direction once it makes impact, he doesn't let you do that. He keeps his forearm Got on your it. head so that you take the full okay. impact on your jaw on uh, over yeah. the forearm and on the back of your head onto the mat. And that's what Jordan Levitt did in this one. And now that he mentioned that, I think a lot of fighters will be trying it. Uh, this is something that I noticed again years well, ago. Well, they may try to make it illegal because it's essentially using the mat to deliver a, a strike to the back of the head. I doubt they'll make it illegal uh, unless it becomes like just a regular thing and it's happening to all kinds of fighters. But also, like, you think the UFC is going to make an effort to stop slam knock- knockouts from happening? Hell no. They're going to they're gonna be into that stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, his, the other defense there, it lets you bounce against the mat, which is helpful. But if you're getting slammed, I mean, that's how, how wrestlers take bumps is they, they tuck their chin. You tuck your chin in, and you let, and the force. And this is probably why some of the neck have so many serious neck injuries. But the force uh, goes against your back, your heavily muscled back and shoulders, um, and the and yeah. The but base, if you have your opponent's form, right? That's why he's right. He's preventing that. He's preventing them from taking from taking the bump with that technique. Yeah, essentially. And Jordan Levitt is a submission guy. I will say quickly, Matt Wyman uh, kind of was uh, Levitt kind of lifted him up, and Matt Wyman put his legs around him as Levitt was still standing. As Levitt walked across the octagon, Matt Wyman just needed to stand up, Nick. 
He just like made the decision to keep his legs around him. It's bad decision making. You would expect that a veteran would have the IQ to not do something stupid like that, but he didn't. Matt Wyman has no business competing in the the UFC, and I'm and I'm for his sake. I'm glad that he is hopefully moving on after this one. Luis, yeah. Sorry, you get confused in the moment too. Like she hasn't done it since, but it's been. I've seen her kind. Well, actually, she has, and I've seen her kind of struggle with it. Roxy Mataferi in her her one. I think her only KO loss. Uh, to Sarah Kaufman, a fight where she was extremely competitive early on in, in, in Strikeforce. And she had an arm bar, and Kaufman slammed her and knocked her out. Like, Roxy just needed to let go of the arm bar. Yeah. <laughs> like, and she, there's, she's been slammed subsequently like that. But I I think, you know, you can call it fight IQ. You can call it composure. It's just like, if you're not aware, if you get, it's these things are happening so quickly from their perspective, right? It's a lot easier for us to watch it on TV and see what we do. Um, it's also coaching. I mean, coaches need to scream like, let it go. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, something, stuff happens in there. Like I've never, I've never been in the cage. I know that, I know that fighters who are winning fights go back and have no idea what round it is. So the level of like self-awareness and composure when you're in a, you know, when you're in a cage fist fight and with the bright lights on and, you know, 20,000 people around you, like psychologically, it's, uh, you know, it's a lot to ask. Yeah, and I do think that's one of the differences between the truly high-level fighters and the lower-level guys is that the high-level fighters are in the moment. They are very aware. There's a downside to it in that if you get hurt, you feel it more, even though you should have the composure to kind of work through that moment if you're an experienced guy. But yeah, like being in the moment makes a big difference, and Matt Wyman making a decision like that probably wasn't in the moment there, and understandably, he was dominated in his last two bouts. Luis Smoka, his pressure, his ground game came through against Alberto Quinones. I talked about how Quinones is going to be the faster man here, but I liked Luis Smoka's pressure as long as Smoka came in in shape, and he looked looked good in the weigh-in, so I was confident in his chances against Quinones, and, and he pressured him well. We have to quickly talk about Ilya Taporia who knocked out Damon Jackson in the first round. This kid is, he has all the makings of a future champion. He's certainly going to enter that top five sooner or later at 145 pounds. That was incredibly impressive. He now has two wins over two fairly successful UFC fighters. His first opponent, Nick, was 10-2 and two when he beat him, Yusuf Zalal, and now 18-3 and three, Damon Jackson going into this one. Extremely impressive. Tuporia has the wrestling. He has the uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He has the boxing and the power in his hands. He is not like a jack-of-all-trades. He's kind of a master of all trades, at least in the early going we can kind of say that. Really, really impressive. He took that UFC debut on something like six days' notice and outworked Yusuf Zalal for a decision when Zalal was preparing for weeks for that one. So his conditioning should not be in question either, as far as I can tell, man. I'm really impressed by this kid. And I think there's a good chance that he has probably now emerged, in my mind at least, as the number one prospect from the country of Georgia, even over guys like Dvashvili, uh, over guys like Jiga Jigadze. I, I think Ilya Taporia is something truly special. He's going to be a huge favorite in his next bout, I think. Just just 23 years old. Now, here's the question for you, though, Stan. All right, yeah, Georgian fighter, born in Germany. Right. I don't know if he's ever lived in Georgia, actually, um, but he's fighting out of Spain um, in, in Clement Clement Club in uh, Alicante, Spain. Uh-huh. Like, it, and it looks like there's another Tapuria that fights out of there, Alex, who may or may not be his brother. He had three fights in 2015, uh, and that was it. But does he, is this camp going to work for him? The camp that he's currently with? I don't know much about them, but if they built him to be the fighter that he is now... I don't know that we have much reason to doubt him. Like he himself is something special, but you do have to have a special camp to bring okay. this level of technique out of you. Like we well, talked about how OSP says, is sorry, talented. Yeah. 
I just huh? found another piece of information. I apologize for interrupting. It does say on Tapology that he also, he's also affiliated with MMA Masters, which would make a lot more sense. Uh, yes, but, that, but who knows how he sp- who knows how he splits his time? Who knows what if he does his main training and he does maybe he does his fight camps there with you that's know, often how it works. Yeah, I think guys know, fly into the, the case, for their camps. And he's training, you know, and he's training with the uh, Miguel Baeza and and Colby Covington and and Ricardo Lamas if he's if he's still training there. Um, that would be, you know, that's certainly higher level guys than than you're going to bump into in Spain. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm there with you absolutely. And then just quickly, Jake Collier like seems wait, to have. Wait, wait, wait! Yeah. I have a terrible joke to make. Spain, Please. amazing, amazing for tapas, not so good for tap outs. <laughs> Um, did, did you write that before the, the show? Did it just come for you? No, it just came to me now. Just came to me now. I like it, Nick. Um, Jake Collier basically looked like his middleweight self, like pretty fast, pretty technical. His conditioning was intact. Pretty, pretty well fed. <laughs> pretty well fed, yeah. But here's the thing. He weighed in at 265. I thought he looked in pretty decent shape uh, on the scale. Like He didn't look like he was just completely just just like you know it wasn't like fat was pouring over his shorts right like he looked okay for a big guy almost like he belongs as a heavyweight and look maybe the guy was keeping himself uh kind of limited with his cuts down to 185 and 205 earlier on he looked good here against Volante. i know Volante sucks but jay collier pieced him up man he just looked really really technical really good really fast uh, well conditioned so props to that guy i think a lot of people put too much stock in his loss to tom aspinall who's blowing through everybody nowadays uh early in that first round you know i don't know that getting knocked out by aspinall in 45 seconds means that you're not a skilled uh, or conditioned fighter and we saw no, that play out here listen we were we were he had taken a big break and he'd gone from and he had blown up from middleweight to enormous so it was like there's not a lot of guys who just decide to go up to you know two weight classes, carry a lot of body fat, and uh, and make it, you know, and make it work. You know, it's yep. just, this wasn't like a, this wasn't like an Anthony Johnson scenario of jumping up weight classes. Um, uh, so and Volante just he just he did not he had nothing. He was I was I don't know. I thought that Volante would still have enough pop. Um, he's just not a he's just not a UFC level fighter anymore. He's not even trying, it seems like, anymore. Like, he he does almost no preparation, as far as I can tell. Is affiliated with a couple of decent teams, but I don't think he's putting the time in. Uh, it's probably time for the guy to move on. He makes a decent paycheck. He's probably getting cut by the UFC as well, by the way, along with Ovin St. Pru, judging by what Dana White said over the weekend. Light heavyweight is so thin that they may need, they may need OSP there. I guess it's getting a little bit better, but it's still... It's a thin division. I'd be much. I'd be much more concerned if I was hanging around, you know, if I was a fifty-fifty fighter. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm worried about. The, I'm worried about the Andre Feelys of the world, the guys who are like really have been around. They're not going to be title contenders. They put on exciting fights, but they're not kind of going anywhere, and they're in a stacked division. Like, I wonder if OSP may survive because of the overall, still kind of anemic nature of uh, of two hundred five. I guess it's possible. I just feel like he makes a bit too strong of a paycheck. Like if he's, if he's I don't, yeah, I don't know what he cut, makes. Uh, I think he makes something around sixty to seventy-five to show, and then another sixty to seventy-five to win. So if you got to yeah, fork over one hundred fifty right. grand for Ovince Pru to rough up like a like a shitty two hundred fiver, I don't think it's worth it, man. Like like I don't think he has any serious. You're probably right. I don't um, look at the. I don't know what the guy what contracts the guys are at. I just know that everyone gets twelve dollars from Reebok. 
<laughs> that sounds um, right. Or pretty soon from Venom. I can't wait to see the payout structure with Venom, but that's a whole It's going to be costume. ever so slightly more naked. And hopefully the UFC won't claim that all of the revenue goes to the fighters this time because that's absolutely there was Oh, it was complete bullshit. And there was there oh my friend uh my my dear friend Andrew Green um told me about a story he was reading about how the Reebok deal essentially killed feeder leagues globally and especially in Brazil. Really? Um and how it's it's really only going to be you know prospecting right now is D1 wrestlers and countries with fight cultures like like Dagestan and Georgia, um, where it's just where it's just part of the you know um, where there's a lot of strength and the numbers of fighters haven't overwhelmed like guys can't get fights in Brazil um, who are talented to sharpen their skills because what happened was before Reebok. That other sponsorship money, uh, which would trickle down, they would right. get the sponsors would get a lot of money um, for the UFC stuff, and then they would spread that money out across other, you know, across other leagues, and enough of the sponsors would accumulate, and they would be, you know, there was essentially AAA and AA style leagues, and now right. in Brazil, guys are paying to fight or getting a dollar to fight, and can't get enough, can't get enough fights. It's uh, the Re- the Reebok deal had a really nasty trickle down effect on uh, on glo- on global MMA, and we're you know an argument could be made that we're seeing it in the the prospects because most of the prospects that we're excited about, um, you know lately are are guys from Eastern European backgrounds. When when was the last time that um, we saw like a super fresh young you know young young Brazilian come up? Most of the Brazilians that we're watching have been around for more than a minute. Yeah, I do hear that. That's yeah, that's fascinating. Nick did not realize. I'll find the article and I'll send it to you. I can't believe fighters are paying to fight or fighting for almost nothing. Paying to you know fight what? or legally fighting for a dollar, they just can't get fights. Honestly, that explains like why fighters like Tali Santos keep like running over one in six fighters, even though they're like twelve and zero at some point in their Brazilian uh, careers. That's that's interesting. Nick. yeah, if I was getting paid nothing, I wouldn't want to fight any any tough guys in the way to the UFC either. Like that's that's insanity. That's good to know. So I'm guessing for some of these fighters, like a contender series bout is a big pickup in. Uh, in kind of their fighters income, man, that's, that's fascinating. I'd love to read that article, Nick, if you do get a hold of it, uh, I'll try and research it. Uh, Nikolai, let's take a break. Let's come back and break down this weekend's big UFC 256 fight card where Davison Figueredo comes back three weeks later to fight Moreno, who's also coming back three weeks later from that same card. Uh, this is a pretty stacked card despite some of those cancellations, Nick, 11 fights coming up. We'll be back. And we're back on the MMA Geeks podcast to break down UFC 256. Nikolai, I am at this point leading with 17 event wins to your 14. Uh, we've got seven or eight draws in there, Nikolai. It's likely that I'm taking this season. I don't know how you can get it through. But you know what, Nick? Maybe if you win the next two events, maybe we'll call it a draw. I'm open to that. First pick is mine this time, Nikolai. And I'm going to pick in the Cyril Gon Jr. Dos Santos matchup. I've got to take Cyril Gaon here. JDS is really skilled. He's obviously very talented, former champion, the uh, one of the few men to beat Cain Velasquez, certainly when he was in his prime. And he's still got talents, man. He still looked good in his last fight early on against uh, Jarzinho Rosenstruck. He 
was able to avoid Curtis Blades' takedowns in the fight before that. Uh, Francis Ngannou blasted through him, but Derek Lewis was his win before that. He was on a three-fight winning streak. I just don't think he has a lot of heart left. Once the guy is hurt, once he's buzzed, he just covers up and is ready to be taken out, ready for the referee to wave the fight off. And I feel like that's probably going to be the case here. Cyril Gaon doesn't have nearly the power that does uh, Curtis, uh, that does Jarzinho Rosenstruck, Francis Ngannou, or even Curtis Blades for that matter. As much as he's probably the more technical kickboxer uh, between all of them, the faster guy, faster but, for sure. Yeah, oh yeah, the, the guy's extremely fast. Like he doesn't, he doesn't hit you with like that shut you off kind of power. Uh, his shots more club you upside the head, even though they're very fast. And and I don't know if it's it's a lack of snap in his punches, but. Uh, I do like that he's been recently using his jab more, usually using more of those front kicks. Eventually, he will go for that takedown. I don't think he's going to get it here. I don't think he's necessarily going to need it. Um, here's the thing. If JDS can avoid getting hurt at any point, he has a decent shot of looking decent here, of making this a competitive decision. It's not like Cyril Gaon is blasting through people in the first few seconds of fights. But I, you know, unfortunately, I don't have enough belief in JDS to, to really come through here. I think Cyril Gaon is super light on his feet. He's like a fast middleweight man, honestly, as far as his speed, as far as his footwork. Uh, his conditioning is pretty solid where he's finished, you know, a couple of fights in the third round at the UFC level. So I'm uh, with Cyril Gaon all the way here, buddy. Yeah, uh, me too. I just don't think that... Uh, Junior that Junior Dos Santos um, is durable anymore. I just think that's what it. I think that's what it comes down to. He certainly was. He was real durable in those in those cane fights. He took a shellacking and kept on whacking. But like, um, you know, over time, it's it's gone. Which was which has been a bummer to see. But he did he did reach the most elite stages, um, and was you know eight years ago, uh, ten years ago was uh, quite the specimen. Yeah. Um, By the way, just real quick, uh, JDS is probably going to be on that UFC cut list after this one. He's a guy who gets paid a lot um, and is going to be on a big losing streak. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that my first pick, and there's a couple of interesting options for first pick here, uh, but I'm going to go with uh, the the baby-faced kid in the very first fight of the night, Chase Hooper. Uh, a prospect who is coming off of a loss to uh, Bruce Leroy, uh, Chase the Dream Hooper, to defeat uh, Peter. Is it, it's uh, Peter Barrett. Slippery Pete. Um, Slippery Pete, who talked a big game, a little Goodwill Hunting. How do you like them apple style? I believe he's trained by Joe Lozon, but in his fo- fight against Yusuf Zalal, just. Uh, you know, show showed toughness. Just didn't show. He didn't show as much skill as I think Chase Hooper has shown um, in his fights. And even though, and even though Hooper's green, I just think he's by far the more uh, the more complete prospect. And that this is this is kind of a get right fight for the kid after his you know after his rookie loss. Yeah, I'm I'm there with you on that one. Uh, slippery Pete, like he's not particularly fast really slippery or really skilled <laughs> yeah I, I guess he's kind of a jack of all trades uh like you said trains out of lasagna mma tough but slow can be hurt but will grit his way through some tough moments he got a win on contender series before losing to prospect yusuf zalal in his ufc debut and i think hooper's just mastery of the submission game should be enough in this one uh anytime you have a, kind of a a guy with one one area in which he really excels going up against an all-rounder. I usually favor that that expert, the the master of one. And 
here's the thing. He's lately switched to the Ryan Hall camp, 50-50 MMA, I believe in California. So I like Hooper to drag him down and score with a submission, if not a clear-cut decision. Slippery Pete is slippery after all. My second pick, Nick, is going to be Tisha Torres to beat Sam Hughes. Uh, Sam Hughes is taking this fight on short notice and you know, she's only got about six fights of experience going in here against a grizzled veteran with a wealth of, of experience against the highest level of competition. And if Tisha Torres was able to get uh, the win in her last bout, she fought Brianna Van Buren, who was a serious prospect from Invicta. I think she can put, uh, I, I think she can put some work in here in this matchup. I think she picks up the win over Sam Hughes. So I like Tisha Torres to kind of right the ship and be in a good place with a, a two-fight win streak after this one. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that you're, I think that you're probably right. I mean, the one, you never know with, with Torres at her size, um, if she's just going to run into a, a, a problem of, of dealing with mass. And I don't, I haven't seen enough of Sam Hughes uh, physically to know if her, you know, she's got something like a four inch reach advantage, a four inch height advantage. Um, if she's going to, if she's going to have the size, how's she going to, you know, how's she going to use it? Is it going to matter? Is Torres going to be able to influence her game? I think the answer to all that is probably. I just didn't have this one quite as far up there because um, I just haven't. I don't know enough about the late replacement Hughes. Yeah, Hughes is a is a tall, strong girl. She's actually fairly technical, I would say overall. Just kind of a, a bit of a bully. Um, so look, she has a chance here if Tisha Torres is really off of her game. The odds haven't come out for this one yet since Hughes took this fight on sh- such short notice. But I, I figure Tisha Torres should probably be a heavy favorite in this one. What's your next pick, buddy? Yeah. Um, let's see. There's some. Int- uh, I'm going to go with uh, Daniel Pineda to defeat uh, to defeat Cub Swanson. Uh, Pineda looked real good against uh, an over an overweight, out of shape uh, Herbert Burns. You know he he finished that fight with some nasty elbows from Crucifix. And as much as I love Cub Swanson, I just think he's one of those guys. I think he's past his expiration date. Um, I don't think he can really um, do damage against average against average UFC guys at this at this level anymore. Um, he's never had incredible power. Um, you know he did he did win a fight a, a decision fight against against Cron Gracie but anyone would and he was fighting high level guys like you know he fought Burgos last year and lost a split decision uh, Moicano uh, he got beat he lost two fights to Frankie Edgar it's uh, I just I just don't think that uh, I think Cub Swanson is just kind of aged out a little bit and Pineda's no no spring chicken. But I don't think he has the kind of mileage against the top level guys. And for me, Cub Swanson's career is a real is a real victory. I mean, this is a guy who 12 years ago had two incre- incredible, kind of humiliating defeats in in WEC highlight real defeats. He took the double knee from Aldo, which like kind of made Aldo. And he also got choked out in like 40 seconds because when he panicked against Jens Pulver, setting up the Pulver Uriah Faber fight. And uh, Cub Swanson rebounded from all of that to have to have quite a good, uh, you know, a pretty a pretty good WBC career and a, and a really strong uh, UFC career, being kind of a stalwart at 145. Um, but I just don't, I think, kind of like a, a JDS. I, I have questions about, I mean, he's not going to, I don't think he's going to curl up, but I, I just don't think he has enough gas left in the tank, to use a sports cliche, uh, to take out a guy who looked as good as Pineda did in his last fight. Uh, so I think that Pineda, I think Pineda probably wins this decision. 
Yeah, I'm there with you. Pineda actually has 28 wins in his career, Nick, and he's got 28 finishes. So I would not at all be surprised if Pineda was able to get the finish here. The thing is that Cup Swanson does well against strikers who are willing to strike with him. He does well against prospects that aren't quite ready for that next step up. That's not the case here as Pineda is a pretty good striker who is solid on the ground and more importantly, willing to pressure. And Swanson does not respond well to pressure. Generally, Pineda actually is on quite a run going into this one. Had seven UFC fights from 2012 to 2014. Three and four record back then, right? He clearly wasn't ready for the big time. He was in his 20s at the time. Since then, he's gone 10 and two, including multiple fights in Bellator and PFL. Two of those wins were turned into no contests when he tested positive for and admitted to using prohibitive stu- uh, substance. And one of those two losses was by cut stoppage in a fight that he was winning. The other was a split decision loss. So like the argument could be made that he could be 12-0 and since exiting the UFC, including his UFC debut against the heavy favorite in Burns. So like I do think he's at his absolute best at this point. You're right. Like not being in the UFC this whole time probably didn't attribute to a lot of the wear and tear on his body. Um, I wonder if the main reason for Mineta's recent success is the fact that he was on the juice, right? Question is, is he still on the juice and doing a better well, you job? Had that, you had that question in his last fight. I think we both picked against him. Against yeah, well, yeah. Burns. I mean, he, he, he was an underdog. He took the fight on short notice. But here's the thing. Uh, when you're on steroids, like the effects of it don't just drop the moment you stop using them because he only took a six-month suspension. By the way, this is one of those examples, right? He had a high, like basically synthetic testosterone in his system, and he only got a six-month suspension by the Nevada State Athletic Commission, the same commission that gave Nate Dia- Nick Diaz a five-year suspension for marijuana. Like, that's insane. The fact that he's able to come back six months after using steroids and compete, still getting some of the benefits from that steroid use is unbelievable to me. Uh, but that is the kind of world that we, uh, that we live in. Here's the thing, right? Whether or not he's using steroids plays a huge factor. That affects your chin, right? It affects your ability to take punishment. It affects your heart. It's the difference between when somebody hurts you uh, and they're pounding you, the difference between you basically like gritting your teeth and just wanting to get him as soon as possible and, and succumbing and just covering up and waiting for the referee to stop it. It affects your strength. It affects your knockout power, your explosiveness. It affects your speed. So it's a huge, huge factor whether or not he's using steroids. And if he is, man, and if he's still getting some of the bene- uh, benefits of having used it, you know, whatever it is, nine months ago, then uh, yeah, I think I think he's going to do well in this matchup. Uh, I just feel like Cub Swanson doesn't do well against really good grapplers who are going to pressure him, and and so this is not a great matchup for him. But if Cub Swanson can use that footwork to stay on the outside to land his offense and not take any big shots from Pineda, not take takedowns, he could uh, outwork him in this one. My next pick is going to be in the Sergey Spivak versus Jer- uh, Jared Vandera matchup. Bandera actually had a successful contender series fight in which he finished in the first round with ground and pound. Spivak has been playing his trade, man. He's been improving fight to fight. He's coming off of a win over a guy uh, that I consider to be like a like a pretty talented heavyweight who I think will eventually make some noise in Carlos Felipe. Uh, lost to Marcin Tabura is not much to be ashamed of. And Walt Harrison, his UFC debut, he got starched by. Um, I like Spivak here to beat Jared Vandera. I think he's going to probably have the better one, too, the better striking. As long as Vandera doesn't get on top for ground and pound, that's the only situation in which I think he's really dangerous. I think Spivak should do well here. He even has a decent shot of uh, catching a submission, an arm yep, triangle choke this, or something. I had the same pick. I'm going to pick Rafael Fiziev uh, to defeat uh, Renato Moicano. Uh, with my next pick, I just think the, the sh- 
I look at the kind of things that have stopped Moicano and given him trouble, and I look at what Fiziev did against Mark Dikesi, and I'm just like, I could see this being a first-round stoppage. I just, I don't think that, uh, I don't think Moicano's going to be able to handle this this level of striking, and I don't think he's going to be able to get the fight anywhere else. So I see this as, um, I think Fizi- I think Fiziev could be looking at a, a, a real scalp here. Yeah, this would be a big one for Fiziev. He's eight and one, two and one in the UFC. I think it's a he bad co- matchup for Moicano. What do you think? I, I, I think you're probably right. I, I do have Fiziev picked here. I think Fiziev might be something special as well. He coaches and fights out of Tiger Muay Thai uh, with guys like Peter Yan. Um, last week, who was it that competed out of Tiger Muay Thai, Nick, and had a really impressive fight? I, last, I can't... Uh, last week? Evloev, yes. Uh, it was, it was oh, Evloev, yeah. uh, another high-level kind of Russian fighter fighting out of that team. Um, really like pressures with fakes and hard low kicks. And then as soon as his opponent throws punches out of, uh, out of kind of frustration, he counters with big hand combos, super fast, really powerful, switches stances consistently. Uh, he actually came up under the same striking coach as Valentina Shevchenko since they're both from Kyrgyzstan. He's strong and super explosive, likes to mix in takedowns from the clinch and get takes, gets takedowns in most of the fights that he wins, developing his ground and pound. Uh, like, you know, he can sometimes be a little bit unbusy there, but when he does, he goes for it and it's hard. Maikano is a former featherweight who trains out of American top team, has solid Brazilian jiu-jitsu, great at taking the back and particularly great at the rear naked choke. I think most of his submissions are by RNC. His kickboxing has actually come a long way since he moved to American top team. His jab and switch head kick in particular are effective, but he did take two knockout losses to Jose Aldo and Korean zombie prior to his move up to 155 pounds. So that is a concern, but more importantly, his confidence to use his technical striking, I think has taken a hit just judging by the way that he kind of went right for the takedown in his last fight. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, I just, and I think I think right now, I think I, watching him, I think Fiziev is a more dangerous striker than either of those guys at this point in, uh, in his yeah. career and the, and the points that they were at when they defeated Moicano. They're great strikers, but Jose Aldo, the Jose Aldo that knocked out Moicano is not the Jose Aldo that that slept Cub Swanson and and Mike Brown and and you know loads of other guys. I think I think Fiziev is a real fucking problem. Yeah, I'm there with you. I do think, though, Moicano probably came into the Jose Aldo fight as a fanboy. I think he had trouble with the idea of fighting like one of his idols. And I think that may have been a factor there. But look, I, I agree that Fiziev is probably the more overall dangerous fighter, but Fiziev is not necessarily as good on the ground. If Moicano takes his back, Correct. he could be in trouble there. Uh, so that's where kind of the the risk comes in. Moicano obviously has a lot more MMA experience, especially at a high level, but Fiziev has a wealth of experience in Muay Thai before his nine MMA fights. Moicano's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like I said, is a concern if he takes the back, but Fiziev has powerful hips. And so not only is he hard to take down, but I think he can explain explode out of like positions with more technical grapplers to get them uh, off him. As much as Maikano could latch on Fiziev's back when they're against the cage um, or Fiziev is kind of getting up to his feet, I'd like Fiziev to get a signature win here, like you said. Uh, knockout is yeah. very possible since Maikano did get finished recently. I just feel like Fiziev really needs to stay alert and do damage, and, and he, should do well, he should do well here. Uh, yeah, the other thing to consider is... That you know, Moicano's last fight against da- uh, Damzer uh, Hadzovic, he, you know, he got the choke and he kind of acted like a jerk after it. Like he, he did. Was, yeah, that there's was something. Weird. There's just there's something we you, you only do that if you're you know a little a little broken, a little flipped out. I don't know. Something's going on. Also, he's up in weight, and I feel I just feel like 
he'd moved up in weight for his last fight, right? This is at 155. He did. Yeah. Yep. most of his success was at 145. Yes. Fiziev's big, and he's gonna hit. He's just gonna hit hard. I don't. I just don't see Marcano eating like taking these shots the way that, um, the way that uh, Dicassi did. Yeah, actually, uh, I, I agree with you there. Um, I actually would recommend checking out Fiziev's Instagram page. There is like a f- seven and a half minute video of him like training for a third round, and you have to see this like, like the the grueling pace that they put him through. They basically train him uh, three seven and a half minute rounds, right, rather than three five minute rounds to really get him ready for just the toughest parts of a fight. And I love that. And they train him in a way that risk of injury should be on the lower end. But man, if you just see him grit his way through the seven and a half minutes, Nick, it's freaking unbelievable. So I encourage people to tune into that. Fazeva's a guy who's explosive, and they normally run out of gas pretty quickly. But he's been taught to fight when he's exhausted, and I and love he's that. Huge. I mean, yeah. oh yeah, he's picture. he's muscular, he, but uh, Moicano's going to be way taller here. He's going to be way taller. He's just, ugh, I think, I'm a big, I mean, I sound like a fizzy of Mark right now for sure, but I just, I see this as, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think if I'm going to make a prediction as an MMA fan, as someone who kind of pays attention to this stuff, and I wouldn't say my expertise is on your level as I've been defeated yet again this season, but <laughs> I think this is, I think this is a statement, a fight, and possibly a star-making highlight reel one. Yeah, I'm there. I'm there with you, buddy. Uh, my next pick is going to be in the main event, Nick. This is one that I'm Oof. very much looking forward to. Um, Figueredo is 20 and one, nine and one in the UFC. I think he's really something special. He likes to hunt his opponents, similar to the way Peter Yan does, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, he actually refers to himself as a predator in that octagon, and I think that's so appropriate with the way that he fights. He just kind of walks forward, not caring whether he gets hit, as he waits for the moment to land a bomb. Has serious power for flyweight. It helps that he's particularly a big man for the division. He has an overall very physical style, even though his Brazilian jiu-jitsu and striking are getting more and more slick, uh, and he's improved on his takedown defense. He gave up a bunch of takedowns earlier in his UFC career, and he's been much better in that regard, although he did end up on his back in his last fight against Perez. His striking defense has improved quite a bit as well as his head movement has become more of a factor. He's an opportunistic finisher with submissions, um, as we saw three weeks ago in his title defense against Perez. Absolutely huge for the division. Could be competing at 135, and I think sooner or later he probably will be. He missed weight for his first title fight, which you know might ponder the question, like how is he doing three weeks after to be doing another weight cut? Right. From my understanding, it's actually good for him. His weight has been relatively low. He stayed at the UFC PI and put in some serious work. Moreno started on tough as mostly a grappler. His Brazilian jiu-jitsu defense and offense are solid, and his wrestling is getting better and better as he averages two takedowns per 15 minutes in the UFC. He's always had effective Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but has, since his return to the UFC, he's shown really sharp boxing that is supported by a consistent jab, which is what he used to pick up upset wins over top eight contenders Kaikar France and Jose Formiga before dusting off Brandon Rival in under five minutes three weeks ago. Yeah, he's undefeated in his last five fights. So like, I'm getting into a little bit of a breakdown here. You know how I feel about these main events. I like to do my research. Uh, they're common opponents are actually um, interesting, right? Figueredo's one loss was to Jose Formiga, and Brandon Moreno beat Formiga decisively earlier this year. Moreno's last loss was to Alexander Pantoja two and a half years ago, 
and Figueredo beat Pantoja decisively last year as well. So each guy has a win over someone who beat the other guy. When it comes to the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Figueredo's an opportunistic finisher uh, and a black belt. Three of his last four wins have come by submission, even though I think a lot of people consider him to be largely a striker. But Moreno's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is no joke as a brown belt. He's not likely getting caught sleeping like Perez did in that last bout. But if he's rocked first, Davidson could catch his back with a guillotine or something along those lines. Wrestling-wise, Moreno's wrestling might be a big factor here as Figueredo's given up 13 takedowns in his UFC career while Moreno scored 15 takedowns. Uh, but Figueredo has improved in that department lately, like I said earlier. Uh, the striking is interesting here. Figueredo's a hard-hitting boxer. He prefers to stay in your face as he counters your office with his bombs. He averages one knockdown per 15 minutes, which is extremely high for 125 pounds. Moreno has become a sharp boxer who is backed up by his jab, like I said. I can see his jab giving Figueredo trouble if he uses it well. They land at about the same number of strikes per minute, but Moreno is busier and Figueredo is more accurate. Figueredo figures to have more power, but Moreno has always had a solid chin, even before he really developed his boxing. Um, his one knockdown in the UFC was back in 2016. Uh, Moreno was knocked down in 2016, and he didn't actually get rocked. It was mostly uh, he was kind of throwing a kick, and he was on one foot, and he took like a shot across the head. He kind of lost his balance. He didn't look rocked at all. So really, really solid chin on on uh, Moreno here. So I could see him getting through some rough moments if he needs to. Um, so I, again, I could see Figueroa's power being less of a factor than usual. Even though I think Moreno has a decent shot of winning this fight, I'm siding with the champion here because Moreno is hittable enough to take some clean bombs from the harder hitter, uh, the hardest hitter in the division for Pete's sake. I could see Brandon mixing in takedowns, but Figueroa's improved wrestling defense should keep him on his feet enough to do damage. Also, his Brazilian jiu-jitsu should keep him from getting in trouble while he can threaten Moreno um, occasionally, even from his back. Finally, Moreno is no longer the finisher he used to be, and Figueiredo is a prolific finisher for 125 pounds. So I'm going with the champ, even though I wonder about his staying power for 25 minutes. We haven't seen Figueiredo go the full 25, and there's a good chance he's going to have to in this one. I could see Moreno coming on really strong in those last two rounds. Yeah, I'm... Uh, I mean, I'm... I'm... I don't disagree with anything you said. I just, I'm cu- I'm curious what's going to happen, but there's no, if Figueredo's weight isn't going to be a problem, he's, he's just a brick wall and it's going to be, it's, it's going to be tough for uh, Moreno to, Moreno's just going to be in more danger for the entire fight, no I matter how long that it goes. And I think over the amount of time that happens, Figueredo's likely, for something to happen, I do. I, I have. A, there's a bit of an upset feeling around this, but I don't. Davison Figueroa hasn't shown me um, enough weakness that I think Marin, that it, that he won't. Any trouble he gets in, he won't be able to get out of like he did last fight with that amazing uh, that amazing switch that he pulled. Yeah. So. I I think I think it'd be really interesting if Moreno wins. It could be exciting for the division. I know Figueroa is just really starting out as champ. Is he going to be dominant? Is he not? Well, this is a real contender. So it really is. You know, we'll see. But I think I think it's like I think that you know I think the odds are a little crazy in minus three hundred. Yeah, I'm there uh, with for Figueroa. I would probably I would probably put it more like minus minus maybe one fifty. Um, but I think. It's really hard to find a reason to pick against Figueredo, but it, it's got, it certainly has fight of the night uh, possibility. It could be a split decision. I think it's it's definitely must. I mean, this is two. This is the best two guys in the division. So 
it should be interesting. Um, yeah, I'm there with you. I think what makes it particularly interesting is the fact that Moreno is really strong defensively, where uh, Figueredo is strong offensively. Moreno yeah. has a phenomenal chin and good boxing, and really, really good grappling. So he's not likely to get caught. So yeah, very. very I don't much know. If, see, I don't know if that's one. true. And and here's why I say that. Like, yes, he has a great chin, but nobody has Figueredo power. Like people have talked about him as, and and the UFC has done this a little bit, but they've. Uh, uh, you know, they refer to him as like 125s in Ganu with his with his power. Maybe largely off what he did, to, you know, the way that he hurt Benavidez. But it could be that even guys with even guys with great chins like are going to get seriously buzzed or knocked down uh, the way that Figueroa's throwing right now. But, but we'll see. Yeah, it's, um, it's possible. He might just be the guy to test Moreno's chin. Uh, I'm very much looking forward. And to it won't mean Moreno excited. has a bad chin. It just means Davis and Figueroa has bonkers power from 125. True. Um, so I'm going to go for my next pick with Tony Ferguson to defeat the Bronx Charles Oliveira. I think it'd be a great story and really terrific if Oliveira was able to pull this off. But the fact of the matter is, despite as strong and mature and smarter and better composure and more well-rounded Charles Oliveira's been uh, the last couple of years, it's always been fun to watch. Um, but he's, he's really been putting things together. The fact is that we've seen Charles Oliveira in multiple fights wilt under pressure. Either either via injury or just running just not knowing what to do, running out of gas like Tony Ferguson is the is if that's the you know, if that's the proverbial problem with your armor so to speak, Tony Ferguson's the last guy you want to fight because he's the guy that puts you with his pressure who puts you in those situations and just drag just drags you into an uh, wherever the fight's taking place and scrambles on the feet on the ground into just chains chains of violence and i i don't know that we've if for and i believe that ferguson's probably recovered okay uh from the gagey fight and it's not like olivera although he does have certainly is a much better kickboxer now and ha- has some pop He's not walking. He's not walking around with rocks for hands the way that the way that Gagey is. So I see, I see Tony Ferguson, essentially just over, overwhelm, overwhelming Oliveira, breaking, uh, you know, putting him in a position where he loses his composure, and and likely getting the finish probably you know probably by ground and pound after getting a favorable decision. I'd love to be surprised, and it'd be and I, and I think it'd be cool to be wrong. I mean, I might be wrong, but this is. This is the if Charles Oliveira is going to pivot into the true elite. Uh, this is the fight. This is the fight where it's going to happen. But though he, when you when you look at <clears throat> his career and his trademark victories and his trademark defeats, I just see what Tony Ferguson's great at uh, creating a lot of trouble for DeBronx. Yeah, I am there with you on the pick. Obviously, we all know Tony is a high-paced pressure fighter, solid chin, great recovery, and an unbreakable will. He just keeps popping you with straight punches until you kind of go in for a takedown, and then he catches that Darce choke. Tall for 155 with a 77-inch reach. Has a wrestling background, but he can't be taken down. His Brazilian jiu-jitsu is solid, but he can be kept on his back by a bigger man. And he's coming off of his first loss in over eight years as Justin Gaethje broke his 12-fight win streak. Oliveira's 
the most prolific finisher in UFC history, put away 16 opponents within 15 minutes, and he's currently on a seven-fight win streak in which he finished all seven opponents. He's always had dangerous Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but recently with joining Shooterbox Diego Lima after moving back to Brazil, everything seemed to change. He's almost as dangerous standing as he is on the ground now with a couple of those seven wins coming by knockout. Historically, he's had issues with not only his striking, but his lack of conditioning and a lack of heart once like things start going against him. He doesn't react well to getting hit, and that has improved, but he still doesn't look comfortable when he's hit, right? He's improved his conditioning, but he was slowing down against Kevin Lee, who was prone to getting submitted in the third round. So Oliveira, even though he was kind of losing heart seemingly and slowing down, he was able to catch that guillotine uh, because Kevin Lee makes terrible decisions. Um, he had a shoulder injury, from what I understand, a couple of weeks before that fight, and I'm not sure how much that had to do with it, but Oliver himself said that like his coaches forced him to stay in the fight. He wanted to pull out. So that kind of makes me question his heart still. They have three common opponents, Cerrone, Anthony Pettis, and Kevin Lee. Tony finished them all, even though Cerrone and Pettis were past their primes when he did it. Charles lost to prime Cerrone and Pettis and is coming off a third-round submission over Kevin Lee. Ferguson was consistently countered by Justin Gaethje in their bout, and Oliveira's striking looks solid, even on the counter. Uh, this is a three-round fight, which favors Oliveira, who tends to wear down as the fight goes on. I think a five-rounder would be like an easy Tony pick for me. But this fight was scheduled three weeks before the fight night, right? Which means Oliveira did not get enough time to get his cardio up to level, and I assume Tony Ferguson's always training. Tony's a slow starter, but he's kind of gets going by the end of that first round, coming at you 100% by the middle of that second round. Oliveira is a super fast starter who slows down if he doesn't finish early. Oliveira is very capable of catching a sudden submission, but that's kind of always possible with him, especially since his wrestling has improved and Tony's has gotten worse over the years. Tony may have been bested by Gaethje, or he may actually be kind of past his prime, and that's really, I think, what will decide this fight. All the punishment he's taken, including in that Gaethje fight, may have caught up to him. Given the way Oliveira generally reacts to strikes, and namely the way he reacted to the couple of times Kevin Lee cracked him, and the fact that he doesn't have heart or long-term staying power, I like Tony's relentless offense to overwhelm Oliveira sooner or later. Um, I think he finishes with a TKO in the second or third round here. Uh, if Oliveira yeah. can hang on to a decision, good for him. I'm surprised you didn't pick him pick him higher. But um, yeah, so I'm going with... Right, so my pick was obviously Ferguson. I also think the important thing to note is, yes, Olvera's been on a run, but aside from Kevin Lee, who's got, had all kinds of problems walking into defeat um, the last you know the last couple of years, those seven scalps, not great. Not, I mean, his since his loss to Felder, and I know you hate it when I just like list off fights, but <laughs> there's no top, there's no, there's no top 15 guys in, in his run. Zero. I think I think uh, Kevin Lee, Jared Gordon, and Nick Lentz were probably top fifteen. Maybe even David Tamar when he beat them. Um, yeah. M- maybe maybe yeah. Like maybe they're not anymore. Some of those guys, but I believe they were when he beat them. I could be mistaken. But it's not a murderer's row. They're not elite. I they're agree. just not. They're not elite guys compared to what Tony Ferguson's been facing for the last five years. Yeah, I'm there with you. So we'll see. It would be like I said. It'd be very interesting to see the Bronx turn the corner um, and get the signature victory of his career. I think it'd make, it'd make for a more interesting division and MMA narrative. Uh, but it's Tony fucking Ferguson. So let's see. Yeah, I'm there, I'm there with you. Tony's relentless offense and Oliveira's knack for kind of wilting is the biggest factor for me. But if Tony is really past his prime, if he's really kind of a fraction of the fighter he used to be, Oliveira can piece him up. Oliveira can submit him. Oliveira can potentially uh, rock him, especially after that beating that Tony took several months ago. So uh, there's potential for interesting stuff here. And again, I, I'm loving this main event and co-main event, Nick. Very excited about both on top of a pretty solid card. 
I think I'm going to take Gavin Tucker to beat Billy Quarantillo. I know Quarantillo is a bit of a favorite here, uh, and he is coming off of going 3-0 in the UFC, which is impressive. 15-2 record overall. He's got uh, UFC wins over Spike Carlisle and Kyle Nelson, who are you know pretty decent fighters, but as we're learning, like not very high level. And in my opinion, Jav, um, Gavin Tucker is extremely talented, like really skilled in all departments. And I think the concern for this matchup for him is like what happened with Rick Glenn, who's like the taller guy who was able to outpace and outpressure him over time. But Gavin Tucker's fixed his cardio issues as far as I can tell. He's got two third-round submissions since then. So I like Gavin Tucker. I think he's going to be the more talented, more athletic, more physical, and probably more skilled fighter, even if uh, his opponent might have a little more grit. Yeah, this. I mean, this is a this is a really really tough one. This has split decision written all over it. But I'm going to. Oh boy. I think Quarantillo will get a split decision, but I don't. But I'm not. I don't think anything you said is wrong. Um, so. <clears throat> <clears throat> this next pick, I mean, either one of these next uh, pair of choices is really, really um, difficult. But oh boy, this is a, this is definitely a tough one. I'm going to to use a stanism ever so slightly. <laughs> pick uh, pick Mackenzie Dern to defeat uh, Verna Janaroba and what I think could be a fight of the night. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting. They're both coming off. Uh, first round, make it look easy. Submissions, Vanderova, um, armbarred Felice Herrig in her last fight, following a, a rear naked choke win against Mallory Martin. Mackenzie Dern, um, was it a leg lock she defeated uh, Handa Marcos with? What was it? I thought it was an armbar, but maybe you're armbar. Right. It was no, you're right. It was an armbar. Yeah. Um, it was because I think it maybe was because Marcos went for a leg lock or something, but she ended up. On the ground, I, this Dern's looked really, really great since she came back um, from, you know, from having her kid. And her, you know, in her first fight, she ate a lot of shots from uh, her first fight back, a lot of shots from Amanda Hebus. And but Hebus is a real nasty prospect, and she had a, she's had a knee bar and an arm bar since. She's fighting another uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu master, but I think that I think that Dern's wrestling uh, might be better. So I see her being more likely to control the position and having Jandaroba uh, on defense trying to maybe win from, you know, win from her back. And I think that Dern's jiu-jitsu uh, is too slick for that. This is, I, a lot of the crazy things can happen here. I'd love for it to end in a submission. I think what we're going to get is a, a, a Dern decision where their jiu-jitsu defense nullifies one another and Dern's, um, and Dern's strength and is just able to kind of like muscle her to a decision. Yeah. Um, I, I, this one is interesting. Like obviously both are Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts. Mackenzie might have the edge in pure Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but Verna, I think is the much better wrestler. I think that's Verna's like biggest talent. You think talent. so? But, but oh, is yeah, she, absolutely. but you think she's, and you think she's strong. Do you think she's stronger though? I think she might be. I'll put, I'll give you this stat, Nick. The takedown average in 15 minutes for Verna Janjiroba is 4.57. So almost five takedowns per 15-minute uh, fight she gets an average of, right? Uh, Mackenzie Dern, 0.39. Less than one takedown per 15 minutes. Uh, the takedown accuracy for Verna Janjiroba is 50%. And for someone that goes for takedowns constantly, that's pretty good because you're going to shoot and reshoot. You're kind of using some of your takedown attempts to set up next ones. The takedown accuracy for Mackenzie Dern, Nick, 7%. 
So I think wrestling-wise, it's a big edge to John Deroba, but Dern is the better pure grappler, and I think Dern has more power standing. And she's got the reach advantage to hide it. Uh, actually, she might have a, a reach disadvantage, even though she's a little taller in this one. So to win, Verna would probably have to kind of take her down to score points and stay safe in her guard before coming back up and resetting and kind of repeatedly getting takedowns um, and kind of stay out of submissions. I'm picking Verna Jandiroba here. I think she's something really, really special. And I'm still I like not her a lot, convinced but that, that loss. Yeah, that loss to Esparza, though. Uh, yeah, I, know I do Esparza hear that. Is an, I know that Esparza is an elite wrestler. I just yeah. I suspect that Dern's size and that Dern's size and strength is going to nullify that um, that wrestling. I can see it. But I may be wrong. I may be wrong. I could see it, especially with Dern being in this kind of new version of herself, who's in phenomenal shape. Trains at uh, Ruka, which you know Chris Cyborg, Marlon Vera, Jalen Turner are other high level fighters that could, that train out of that gym. So definitely a solid gym behind her. Whereas John Jarobas trains out of Fight House. Uh, yeah, look, it's a close one on paper. There's a reason the odds are close, even though uh, Dern is the favorite here. But I am officially picking the underdog. Cool. Nikolai, the tiebreaker is going to be in the Jacare Holland matchup. Jacare being the underdog here to kind of the up and comer. Tough fight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's a particularly interesting one, I think, for several different reasons. I'm not surprised it's our tiebreaker. Agreed, man. Definitely agreed with you here. Holland is seven and two in the UFC, which is like really impressive. But he hasn't beaten any high level fighters. He's kind of a sharp striker from a distance. He likes the pot shot. And the problem with him is he's got the reach advantage over almost anyone, but he crashes the pocket as he moves forward, which makes him very hittable despite uh, his reach advantage over almost everyone. He's very fast, pretty good grappler as he's a brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but he doesn't hold top position well as most grapplers are able to reverse him eventually. He can lose steam by the third round if he's in kind of a high-paced fight like we saw against Darren Stewart. And Jacare is obviously a legend in his own right with wins over Chris Weidman, Derek Brunson, Vitor Belfort, Jagard Musasi, Robbie Lawler, Tim Kennedy over the course of his 35-fight career. He is known for being an elite Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. That, along with his athleticism and wrestling, was a powerful combination for most of his career. But the athleticism is barely there at age 41 anymore. Uh, with his explosiveness, when his ability to take high-level opponents down, he's given up more takedowns in his last six fights than he was able to get. I think the decline has affected his confidence as well. He's been struggling more with injuries, uh, he has developed his kickboxing game in a big way over the years, though, and he can't quite take a clean shot like he used to. So there are durability issues as well. No doubt Holland would have the striking and speed advantage. No doubt Jacare should have the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu advantage. I think this fight depends on one main thing. Can Jacare take Holland down given his age and wear? And if if he's even half the fighter that he used to be athletically, I think he should be able to get a takedown since Holland walks right into the clinch and his takedown defense is not great. Jacare might be 5-4 and four in his last eight fights, but those losses are to top five competition. Guys like Romero, Whitaker, Gastelum, Hermanson, and he lost via split decision to the current light heavyweight champ, Jan Blackowicz. Does Holland deserve to be mentioned in such an elite group of fighters? I guess we'll find out this Saturday, but I tend not to think so just yet. I'll go with Jacare because we've seen Holland out grappled by lower level black belts like Gerald Mearchart and Brendan Allen. I was going to say, it's like 18 months ago was that Mearchart fight. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Brendan Allen submitted him like more recently than that. Also, Jacare has been fighting and training for five round fights for a while now. And this is his first three round fight in over two years. So he should be free to expend his energy more, uh, you know, in a 15 minute fight rather than saving his energy to spend over the course of 25 minutes. So I do like Jacare here. I think uh, the Trailblazers takedown defense is going to be key here. If he can keep it standing, he can win. But I don't necessarily trust him to keep it standing. I'm hoping that Jacare will go for takedowns because lately he's been going for way less of them than usual. So your pick is Souza. My pick is Souza, and that is going to be our tiebreaker. Cool. A good one, Nikolai. I'm so looking forward to this one. And honestly, Nick, if you can get it within one, to me, that's as good as a draw. So if you can get these next two wins, uh, Nikolai. It's, I'm, I feel more of like you're right. I would love to not. Um, I would love to, there to not be the gap. Like, I don't want to dig it back to five fight gap. So we'll see. Yeah, but I, I think, that. I mean, I also think there's a good chance that we both go undefeated this week. Um, oh, man, that would so, be, that'd be fun. I don't know about that. I think some of these fights are, are going to be a little bit harder to kind of decipher than others. Should we quickly look at the UFC schedule for what's coming up in the short term, Nick? Yeah, if you got, if you got a minute, let's do that. This is the last card of the year. Yeah, I, the, I believe I, you're right. Yeah. It's, it's on uh, it's on the 19th and i think we're going to have a lull of about 3 weeks there and maybe you and i can get into like some other subjects and and we'll have less prep time as we do for these events yeah. but maybe we can get into some interesting mma news next week we've got steven thompson joff neal uh, in the main event with Marlon Marais and Rob Font in the co-main. I'd say it's a pretty fucking good st- uh, like start if you're looking at card. just the top this 2 fights. Really, yeah. Yeah, i mean this is really a re- this is a really really good card. Um Jose Aldo, Marlon Veronik, how awesome is that? Marching to Burr, Greg Hardy. I think it's a great test for both guys. Um, man, Anthony Pettis, Alex Morono just got put on this card. We've got Bilal Muhammad, Diego Lima. Um, Penny Kanzad, Shajara Eubanks could be interesting. Chaos Williams versus Michelle Pereira I'm excited about. Darren Wynn, Antonio Arroyo's got me excited um, that Jimmy Flick, Cody Durden fight, and the Jillian Robertson, Tali Santos fights got rescheduled from last week to this uh, next week after this pay per view. Nick, really solid card, man. Something it is. A, really I mean, knock on wood. To. We'll see where we're at. We'll see what COVID does to it. Um, but oh yeah, it's a good so, point. So yeah, so far pretty ex- yeah pretty exciting. And then we get uh, we get three weeks right. And then what's yeah. the, what's the first card in January? Holloway, Calvin Cutter. I am very Qatar. I'm very very excited about that one. Oh, back on Fight Island they're going to. Yes, sir. Ricky Simone, Brian Keller, Tim Elliott, Jordan Espinosa, Ponzinibbio's coming back against Muslim Selikov. Oh, this is a fight that, that will love probably that. get torn apart by the time it happens. But just quickly looking at it, Nick, we got 3, 6, 9, 12, 13, 14, 15 fights scheduled on the card as of now. So I assume like half of these fights you know, will end up getting canceled, and then we'll still get left with something to ponder upon. Nick Lentz apparently making his comeback against Mike Grundy in that one. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, in the final fight of Beth Cahaya. <laughs> yeah, pro- probably in all likelihood. You're probably right there. Nikolai, looking forward to the card. Looking forward to discussing results next week. Another good one in the books, buddy. Yeah, really, really fired up for this card. Can't wait to see what happens on Saturday. Super psyched. We're going to take a break, and then I'm going to come back and give you guys the MMA Geeks betting guide. I see some opportunities on this one, and we're coming off of another profitable week, so lots to talk about. And we're back on the podcast for the MMA Geeks betting guide. 
Last week was a pretty good week for us. It's a profit, only $47, but I will take it considering there were a bunch of fights that ended up getting canceled, which kind of reneged three of our bets and weakened one of our bets because it was a parlay. And one of the uh, Santos was a part of the parlay with Tapuria, and that one ended up being a much less profitable circumstance because Santos was taken out of that fight. So 907 was our bankroll, $47 was our profit, which brings us up to $954 in total, which means we're 318% up from our first investment of 300 bucks a few months ago. This week, I'm seeing some betting opportunities here. Let's get into it right away. First, I recommend a parlay of Ferguson and Jacare Souza, plus 242 combined odds, $21 to win 51 on those two. Next, I have a three-fighter parlay. These are three fighters that I'm fairly confident in for this event. Rafael Faziev, Cyril Ghosn, and Virna Jandiroba combined plus 475 odds, $20 to win 98 on Faziev, Ghosn, and Jandiroba. And I'm also going to hedge those bets with a bet on Dern by decision, $15 to win 47. Dern is an adept Brazilian jiu-jitsu grappler. We all know this, but Jandiroba is really legit there. And at the very least, Jandiroba is a better wrestler, so she should be on top. And I expect that worst case if Dern does win, it's going to be by decision. She's got a few fights by decision against the better grapplers that she's fought. And I don't expect that Jandiroba is going to give up a submission in this one, even if she does lose. And then another hedge on Moicano by submission. If he's going to beat Rafael Fiziev, it's probably going to be by taking his back and a rear naked choke. And so I, I've got to kind of cover my bet there. Plus 460 on Moicano by submission is kind of crazy. I can't believe they left this opportunity open. $15 to win 69 on Moicano by submission. So the way it's going to work is that if this ends, if that parlay, that three fighter parlay ends up going through, then we're going to have a profit of about $70. And if it doesn't go through and either Darren wins by decision or Marcano wins by submission, I'm still going to have a profit or at the very least, I'm going to tie it up. So I'm kind of uh, hedging my bets there. Next, another three fighter parlay. I'm taking some risks on this event, even though it's not a whole lot of investment in these three fighter parlays. I've got a parlay on Figueredo, Fiziev, and Pineda. $36 to win 105 at plus 293 odds. I'm going to hedge this one as well with a bet on Moreno by decision at plus 700, $7 to win 49. There's a chance that Moreno wins this fight. He's a really skilled fighter. I think that Figueredo's physicality will win out. His power will probably win out at the end of it. But if Moreno does win, it's probably going to be by decision, by taking over as the fight progresses slowly, uh, kind of you know surviving through the first round, doing better in the second, winning the third, possibly winning the fourth and the fifth. And it's $7 to win $49 on Moreno by submission, a plus 700 odds. That's insane. Plus, I've got a hedge on Swanson by decision, plus 250, $12 to win 30. Again, this is basically going to cover some of my losses on the on the um, parlay if this doesn't work out. I don't expect to make a profit from Swanson by decision because if Swanson wins by decision, that means that Pineda lost and that parlay is killed. So again, just a hedge here, right? I've got one more parlay Chase Hooper and Gavin Tucker, plus 228 odds on those two combined, $22 to win 50. I already kind of hedged at least that Tucker bet. Um, maybe I should consider a hedge on Hooper's opponent by decision. I could certainly see him avoiding takedown since his takedown defense looked decent in his UFC debut, and I could see him winning on the feet. Maybe I should throw that parlay in. I'm just kind of throwing that word out to you guys. And then I've got a couple of throwaway bets of just a few bucks a piece. 
I think Tony Ferguson has a good chance of wearing down Oliveira by the third round and finishing him in that third round. And Ferguson winning in the third round, plus 900 odds on that prop bet. I recommend $6 to win 54 bucks on Ferguson in the third round. It's a throwaway bet. If I lose the six bucks, I will not regret it. If I win it, it'll be a nice little payday. And then Oliveira by submission in the first round, plus 650. Look, Ferguson is a really slow starter. Oliveira is a really quick starter. Oliveira is a finisher and specifically by submission. I think that he has a shot if he can get that first round takedown of getting a submission on Tony Ferguson, who's potentially, you know, slower, potentially not the same guy. If you see footage of Ferguson fighting his last couple of fights versus him fighting a few years ago, like in his bout against Edson Barboza, he's a different animal, man. With Edson Barboza, he's faster. He's he's just more imposing. He's busier. Um, and you can kind of tell that he, the guy slowed down. So I could see Lovera winning by submission. And if he wins by submission, I expect that it's probably in the first round. Seven bucks on Oliveira by submission in the first round to win $46. Again, the 6 and $7 bet that I just mentioned, I don't mind losing them. Worst case, I'm going to be okay, especially since we're up 318% from our first investment. That'll be it for me, guys. Nick and I covered what was coming up next week. We're basically ending the year on two really, really good cards, and I'm excited to watch this Saturday and exciting to watch the Saturday after that before we have a couple of weeks off. Now, if you guys have the opportunity, do shoot me a message on Instagram. I'm curious what you guys think of us discussing some MMA news in that three-week period, what you guys think of us possibly re-watching a really close decision and seeing who we really think deserved that. Uh, if you guys have any suggestions for us, would love to know it. On Instagram, my handle is at the constant martial artist. And it's because I'm constantly martial arting. I'm going to have better jokes next week, I promise. Sorry, guys. Have a good week. Thank you for the listen and thank you for the support. Please do spread the word about the podcast. Would love to get more of your friends who are interested in MMA to give us a listen. Thank you all so much. Have a great weekend and enjoy UFC 256.